0: Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. This is episode 110 with Derek Sivers. My name is Sam Matler. I'm one of the co-hosts for the EDM Podcast. My other co-host, Connor O'Brien, handles most of the interviews. Uh, but today you've got me. And as mentioned, this interview is with Derek Sivers. If you don't know who Derek Sivers is, he's best known as the founder of CD Baby, uh, which if you're a producer, I'm sure you will be aware of CD Baby. What a lot of people don't know is that before that he was a full-time musician uh, touring, playing shows, all that kind of stuff. He also graduated at Berkeley uh, College of Music so he knows a thing or two but the reason I wanted to interview Derek Sivers is not because he founded CD Baby, he's talked about that in other interviews in his book I wanted to interview him because of his insights on creativity and music. I think he's a fascinating person. I think uh, his opinion and his thoughts on things are, are very insightful and kind of contrarian as well. And so that's what we focus on in this interview. We talk about a range of topics, including why producers and artists like yourself find it hard to finish work and what you can do about it. We talk about the problem of having too many options you know you open up your DAW and you just you've got all these plugins you've got all these sounds you don't know where to start so we talk about how to combat this plus Derek's number one book recommendation for artists and producers who struggle with this exact problem we also talk about motivation and uh, Derek kind of changes my mind on this and changes my view you know, we talk about how what motivates you to make music might be different to what motivates someone else and that you shouldn't feel guilty for that. We talk about the balance between theory and practice when trying to develop new skills, originality versus imitation and why no one is truly original and how to do what you love and make good money. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one so do join the discussion in our Facebook group You can find it if you search EDM Prod Artist Community on Facebook. Without further ado, here is Derek Sivers. Welcome back to the EDM Prodcast today. I'm joined by Derek Sivers. Derek, how's it going? Thanks, Sam. Good. Good. Now a lot of people know you as the founder of CD Baby but what they might not know is that before CD Baby you were a full-time musician. So tell us a bit more about that and and how all that happened.
1: Yeah, um ever since I was 14 years old like all I wanted in life was to be a successful musician. I was like one of those completely head down, blinders on, driven, get out of my way, focused <laughs> kind of guys. Uh, I, I ended up going to Berkeley College of Music when I was seventeen and stayed for three years until I graduated. And mm-hmm. uh, but even at Berkeley, even amongst the other ambitious students of Berkeley. Uh, my nickname was the robot because nobody ever saw me like <laughs> sleep or eat or hang out. And they'd be like, dude, come on, man. Just come join us for dinner. I'm like, no way. I'd like go into the cafeteria, make a peanut butter sandwich, go back to the practice room. <laughs> uh, I was just completely focused. Um, and this lasted all the way until um, I was 28, 29. I had been touring for like, I don't know. Uh, I guess, like 11 years straight. I'd just been wow. touring nonstop and gigging. And I started this little website just to sell my own CD. And then some of my musician friends in New York City asked if if I could sell their CD through the little thing that I built for myself. And I said, yes, just kind of as a favor to friends. And then it grew into CD Baby by accident. But I never, uh, I never set out to make a business. I was just... Mm in fact i i deliberately did some things to keep the business from growing because i i still thought that i was like this was just a stupid little hobby and what i really wanted was my music and so i i would do things to deliberately keep the business small because i wanted i didn't want it to, to distract me from making my music but after about a year the reason i mentioned that i was like touring for 11 years straight is cuz once city baby started to take off it actually felt kind of nice that um i was helping others for the first time instead of just you know how it is to be an artist it's like me 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 mm-hmm. me my music my noise sure. my 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 image my everything and it was really kind of nice to focus on others um but it was really just helping musicians so it's it's funny that after i sold cd baby i kind of got categorized as an entrepreneur but i never mm-hmm. thought of myself that way i was always just like a musician helping other musicians so that's why uh like Many, many other podcasts have asked me to come talk about business, and I say no. Yeah, And then <laughs> Sam asks me to talk about music, and I say, fuck yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I was pleasantly surprised, and I'm, I'm so glad to have you on, um, and not just talk about business. So one of the, the biggest struggles that people in our audience face, modern producers, I would say musicians as well, is the ability to actually finish work. And I want to dive into this. Why do you think that finishing creative projects is difficult and what do you think should be done about it?
1: Well, I mean, we all probably know, right? It's like the, the fear, the fear of being judged, right? Mm. So it's, if you don't finish something, if you get 90% and then go, yeah, I'll come back to that, then you can never be judged for it, right? Nobody can tell you that it sucks because you don't put it out there, but, um, lately i've noticed uh at least for my own writing i think about the role model of echolocation and i think this is probably the same for all artists no matter what you're making you know whether it's people have this with their visual art too and writers have it with their books um you know how echo echolocation works right like mm. bats or whatever you like you make noise and then you listen to the reflections of the cavern walls around you or whatever it is. And that helps you figure out where you're at. I'm saying you as if you're a bat, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, um, so I think of this with creativity that our, our, our creations that we make go through a few stages. First, there's the solitary creation where it's just you in your studio and nobody hears it. Then you put it out to the world and you start to get the feedback, the echolocation. And for me, I always feel a difference right away, like when I'm writing an article or something I put out into the world, just within minutes of putting it out into the world, even if I felt creatively stuck on it before, at a certain point, I just say, ah, I don't know, it, good enough. I put it out, I tweet it or something, I announce it, and almost right away, as soon as I start getting the first couple comments about it, or as soon as I just know that strangers are looking at it. I now see it from a different point of view. I see it from a stranger's Mm -hmm. point of view. And instantly I look with fresh eyes at it, like, oh, now I see what needs to change. And I start editing it immediately. And I start uploading my changes right away. So it can sometimes it goes through another few revisions, like just in the first hour or two after I release it. But the point is, I think I don't think about finishing anymore. I'm not trying to make things perfect. I just get things to where I consider it like a rough draft or a pretty good rough draft. And then I just put the rough draft out there so I can start to get that echolocation. So I can start to see where it's at. Um, I often also think of the metaphors of like, you air it out, you let it get a little sun, you get this thing out of the studio, put it out into the world. And there's something about whether you think of it as air or eyes or sun or echolocation, it's, there's something about having the world see it that really, I think, gives you that last creative boost to finish it, because now you're seeing it through others' eyes or you know hearing it through their ears. Um, and lastly, I, I like that in English, we we say that uh, an album is released, a song is released, a movie is released, yes. a book is released. <laughs> I think it's a great metaphor, because um, when you release something, you let it go. Mm.
0: I love that. And I think it's so true because as musicians and any form or any sort of creative person, you get so involved and stuck into your own work. And that's a good thing. But uh, it's very hard to kind of step outside of yourself and take that um, objective look at your art. And I've noticed that as well. When I put things out, you know, the next day I'm like, oh, right, that needs to be changed. That's not good. Didn't think about that. Even if there's no comments about it, it's just you start to have a different perspective.
1: Yeah. And sometimes I feel bad about that. Like I should be able to to do that round of improvements here by myself Mm. before Mm. putting it out. But I've just found like, eh, I I can sit here for like three hours and try to think of what other people might say about this. But just the act of uploading it somewhere, putting it out into the world, then just instantly I go, ooh. Oh, okay. I can see it now. <laughs> you know, now, yeah. now that it's aired out now that the, I don't know, whatever metaphor you want to use, it's, it seems to work. So do
0: you recommend for an artist that they have, I, I don't know, maybe like a, an inner circle of people that could give them feedback before they actually put the song out to the public? Or do you recommend just putting it out, putting it on Spotify because it's a little bit harder to edit a song <sighs> than edit an article for instance.
1: Right. Okay. Good point. Um, yeah, maybe not Spotify, but maybe, you know, the SoundCloud or just putting sure, something on yeah. your own site uh, might be a better metaphor for that. Um, I don't know. I've thought about that inner circle thing a lot um, with my writing, for example. Mm. And even, yeah, I don't know, even – have you know, – wait, do you do you play live? Uh, no, I haven't played live in many years. Okay. But I have done it. Do you remember – or maybe I don't know if this is the case for whoever is listening here – it can be much harder to perform for an audience of five than it is for five hundred. Yes, like yep. if you're playing to a big group of five hundred or even five thousand, it's easier than performing for five. When you're yeah, performing they for five, yeah, just become people. Yes, and it's you're like too aware of. It's like okay, <laughs> this is awkward. This is just me and five people. Yeah. Fuck. Now it's yeah. it's you really feel <laughs> their stairs or it feels like a conversation but you're just hogging the conversation somehow yeah um yeah. so maybe that's why i've never done that inner circle thing i've thought about it many times because logically it seems like yeah that's mm. a good middle ground you know you start to air it out send it to your inside circle but i don't know it just feels maybe that's why i've never done it because it's like playing for that five is a people. good point i think also
0: people tend to build an inner circle of uh I don't want to say yes men, but friends who aren't always right. going to give them the objective right. critical feedback. Even if oh. they say, yeah, I'm going to be critical with you. They won't be because they don't want to offend. They don't want to hurt your feelings.
1: And that it's can work. Um, so one of the best things I did in the past as a musician was I would always attend. Um, so I lived in New York city, which really helped because there's a huge music business community there. Mm. So they have, uh songwriting workshops where aspiring songwriters would come in person into a group of like a room of 15 other songwriters and you'd pay a couple hundred bucks to do this thing uh, i mean for like a let's say like 15 classes for 150 bucks or something like that so you'd commit to going for 15 weeks and then every monday night 7 p.m in midtown somewhere you'd go and it would be led by a, a, a successful record producer who has like a decades long history of listening to songs and giving constructive critique like,, um, you know what your, your bridge is missing the point there. You totally lost the plot on the bridge or hey, you know, your, your intro was too long. like you can't go 16 bars in an intro. you know you, you kind of you lost us bring it in here. like somebody who was an expert in the song craft and, and able to critique other songs. and then you've got 15 other songwriters in the room and the deal was everybody gets to play their song each time they come in. But in return, you have to listen to everybody else's song mm. and give helpful feedback. So yeah, you'd bring in your song, you'd play it for the room, and then one by one, pretty much everybody would have some kind of bit of feedback that they would give you to be helpful. And then it was really reciprocal because in return then, you would you would try to be a helpful person so that it when it's your turn to play your song, that other people would be helpful back to you. It was a great environment to get real yeah, critique. Like but the point is, it's work, like yeah. to listen to somebody's song and go. All right, he, here's what I think you need to change. Like hmm. you know, you, you need more variety in this instrumentation here. Like you've lost it. Like it's it's getting monotonous here. In you know, this, you you're repeating this bit too much, or you're going through too many song sections. Your song form is A B C D E F A B C D E F. We, yeah, come on, yeah. A B C A B C. <laughs> then introduce the D section. Like it's work yeah. to to know the craft enough to give real constructive feedback like that. Um, I mean, first it takes someone, an expert to know it, and then it's work to do it. So yeah, asking your fans, you know, I mean, fans or friends, they just go, mm, it's cool, man. Mm. I don't know. It's fine. I don't know. That's such a good point. And
0: it's, you know, we get a lot of requests through email to give feedback on songs. And we have kind of a blanket rule that we don't give it, first of all, because it takes so much time. Uh, and second of all, because it takes so much time, like, <laughs> you know, like, I, I think people think you can just have one quick listen to a song and then give some helpful feedback. No, right. it usually takes a few listens. And if you really want me to help, I'm going to give you like a one page Google doc with my explanation instead of just saying, oh yeah, your kick drum's too loud, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think people underestimate, like you said, the amount of work that it takes and expertise. Yeah. Um, going back to the finishing work thing I think nowadays maybe this always existed I don't know but nowadays there are endless possibilities especially in electronic music production Mm -hmm. due to software you know it's just opened up this whole creative world Um, you can do whatever you want, you can make any sound you want, plugins (laughs) are cheap samples are cheap and Mm -hmm. this is great, I think it's democratized music production but I think it's also led to a big creative issue, which is people have too many options and they yeah. fail to just decide and
1: execute. If that makes yeah. sense. What are your thoughts on that? Oh man. I <laughs> I recently got the, uh, native instruments, uh, s88 i think is it was the complete control oh, 88 yeah. oh, s88 man. and along with it i was like you know what man i'm going all in i got like the complete collection 11 oh, or whatever no. it's called yeah. with you know yeah. uh, uh what is that like 400 gigs of sounds yeah or something I, got, like that. I got it that's a lot <laughs> and i'm like all right i got all these sounds and i like fired it up and i was just like oh fuck like what yeah. <laughs> just too much <laughs> like it was it was daunting i would like feel myself get tired just mm, just yeah. thinking about it i would like well let me go do something else it made me want to like pick up clarinet or something so i just have no <laughs> options it's like well all i could do is blow into this thing and make clarinet noises that's yeah. that's a little more appealing right now so yeah. um there is a book that every electronic musician should read it's called the paradox of choice By Barry Schwartz. He is a uh, brilliant psychologist. He studied this problem of too much choice for many years and wrote like the masterpiece book on the subject. Um, So many people know this book in so many walks of life. I've talked to like business people and programmers and uh, just whatever, regular people that have interesting brains have all, like I've just run across so many strangers that go, you know, the paradox of choice. Yep. Paradox of choice. Amazing book. Mm. Please read it. Here's the gist. If you had to sum up the, like the, the point of the book, he says that in this modern age, we do have more choice than ever. And when we have more choices, we may technically make a better decision, but we feel worse about it because we're Mm. more aware than ever of all the choices we didn't choose. And feelings count. Like, how do you uh, say something is technically a better choice, but you feel worse after making it? Like, yeah, yeah, does that, can you even say that that's a good choice? So his advice, the author spent most of the book talking about the problem. And again, I still I highly, highly recommend anybody listening to this, go find the book, The Paradox of Choice. It should be everywhere. Um, so only at the end of the book, he said, okay, so I've spent the whole book describing the problem. Uh, my book publisher tells me i need to recommend the solution (laughs) so here in the final (laughs) chapter is my solution based on all the experiments we've done and testing people's levels of happiness about the decisions they've made my advice is to not look for the best but just stop at good enough and then move on he -hmm. calls it the difference between maximizing and satisfying. So maximizing is when you are trying to make the, the best possible decision and you geek out, you, you go through every possible sound that you could possibly use. And yes, you may pick one, but you've just, you feel worse about your choice now. Um, so people that just quickly pick something and then say good enough and move on um, make almost as good of a choice... Um, as good or almost as good but more importantly they feel better about their choice Mm. Um, two last things Uh, he says that you should make your decisions irreversible people who make their decisions irreversible feel better about it because something in just in your psychology just kind of justifies you say like right once i decide this is it yeah yeah once i decide this is it I will never go back to change this. You just decide, you know, like, this is it. I I have to move on. It's better that I make more music than go back and edit this bass forever. And um, (laughs) lastly, you just have to make constraints for yourself. You can make it kind of a game. Like You just decide in advance that you're going to compose this next piece using only four sounds and five notes or whatever Mm -hmm. constraints you set. But if you m- mm. give yourself constraint, I mean, in the book, he's talking about life. The book doesn't mention music at all. Uh, the book is talking about life choices. Um, but yeah, he said that people are happier when they set constraints for themselves and then work within those constraints. So I think, yeah, that's a good tip for musicians in there. Yeah,
0: I like that a lot. I actually haven't read that book. It's been on my list for, must be four or five years, and right, I haven't good. read it. So it's time. that's the next one. Um, I, I wanna just spend a little bit more time on the creativity thing. One thing that I see in this community is that artists and producers force themselves into a position where they it's like they only get satisfaction out of the end result of the creative process. That is actually putting a song out and getting, you know, likes, plays, whatever it may be. They only get satisfaction out of that rather than the process itself. And I've noticed that this often leads to disappointment, um, almost a pressure and writer's block. Sometimes quitting altogether. Hmm. If someone's in this position and they're listening to that, and you know they're sitting down, they're spending hours on their music, and they just they feel like it's a means to an end. They're not really enjoying it.
1: Hmm. How do you okay.
0: recommend that they fix that?
1: Huh. <laughs> hmm even if they're not enjoying the process, if they're just doing it for the end, well, then you just got to wonder. I mean, it's, it's not like uh, making music is the path to certain riches. <laughs> you gotta, like, mm-hmm. If you're, if you're not enjoying the process, you got to ask yourself, what the hell are you doing? I mean, it's music more than anything, except maybe poetry. <laughs> it's got to just mm-hmm. got to be doing it for the, uh, for the process. Um, but I think, you know, if you're saying that I should be, I thought you were going to go somewhere different with that, where you were going to say, what if somebody's figured out that they're, they're too focused on the end result and they should be more focused on the process. Yeah. Let's say that. That's, <laughs> well, that's a bit of words than that. Yeah. Well, I've thought about that with my own stuff that I do, whether it's like programming or writing or whatever, that it's, there's a difference between in theory and in practice. And to me, what you're describing is one of those things. It sounds really nice in theory. Like mm-hmm. in theory, we should just be purely intrinsically motivated, right? We should just be happy sure. with the yeah. process. Um, hey, the end result, don't worry about it. Like just enjoy the process. But in practice, I think that we all have different motivation. Like Truth. if you like praise and you know that about yourself, well, then don't reject it. Um, I guess the, the hypothetical person you were describing in the question um, to me sounds like somebody that might be feeling bad that that they are watching their uh, to see how many likes and you know listens and views and thumbs up they're getting on their stuff that they're putting out there. But honestly, what I've noticed over the last few years is that motivation is delicate. And you have to pay really close attention to it to just notice what works for you. And like even in small, subtle ways, if something is killing your motivation, then you got to um, adjust accordingly uh, and stop doing that, even if you think it's something that you should be doing. Um, Mm. And if something works for you, if you notice that you get kind of excited by a certain thing, even if it's something you're a little embarrassed about, but hey, if it works for you, You just got to use that without judgment. Um, Like without judging yourself or worrying what people might say. Um, Some people like to, you know, like those people that like taking lots of selfies and looking at pictures of themselves. Like I've never taken a selfie in my life. No, sorry. I took one selfie once in my life to like, when I bought a new camera, I wanted to see if it worked. I held it up. and That's the only selfie I've ever taken in my life. Uh, That, you know, I, I hate seeing photos of myself. Some people are into it. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. instead of judging, feeling that you should be uh, doing one thing or shouldn't be doing another thing, just you just got to pay close attention to what what's killing your motivation, what's uh, increasing mm-hmm. your motivation, and then just go for it. So like if the fear of getting bad comments is keeping you from creating, well, then you just turn off the comments. You just say, you know what? this whole thing with comments, it's not working for me. If, if i leave those comments on i'm gonna stop making music so i don't care what anybody says i'm turning off comments mm-hmm. um or if the fear of getting too much attention is keeping you from creating um then maybe you should release things anonymously or under a pseudonym or something like that until you're really proud of it or under a different name and then under your own name only once uh you know you've got a little distance from it oh here's an, here's like uh i love this tip i got once. Um, Sometimes it helps to make a distance between the day when you finish something and the day when you put it out into the world. So imagine this mm. imagine if you only release music at least one month after you've finished it. Like mm. you just kind of have this cue, like here we are, what is today, November 3rd or something like that? Like it's, it's something you made today, even if you consider it finished. You just bash on ahead and you start on a new piece of work tomorrow and you put a date Mm -hmm. on the one that you finished today. And only a month later, after the 3rd of December, then you're going to put that one out. Because now there's a little distance between the creation. You can look at it with a little separation and not get your feelings hurt if somebody critiques it because it's like, yeah, Yeah, that's that's last month's stuff. Um, Yeah. Those little subtle things, you know, we can um, make fun of them or think that they're small or silly, but they make a big difference. Yeah, and I
0: think that makes sense. Kind of uh, to expand on that though, and I 100% agree with you, but I do think in this community specifically with the explosion of electronic dance music over the past decade, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people, especially young people who get into making music because they see the rock stars and there's nothing wrong with that. But then it's almost like, all their energy and uh, creativity goes towards this, what would I call it, extrinsic mm-hmm. um, idea of fame or, or money or touring the world. And they, they haven't even looked inside themselves and thought, would I actually enjoy that? The pressure that that causes or the pressure that they put on themselves causes this sort of creative paralysis because they mm-hmm. feel... You know, they compare their music to the stars and they think it's no one is good. I'm never going to make it there. You know, what do I do?
1: Okay. There's an interesting word that's the opposite of distress. So we think of stress as a bad thing, but usually when we think of the word stress, we're thinking of distress. Mm. But there's the flip side of distress is a, uh, a kind of an obscure but legit word called eustress e u s t r e s s and that mm. means positive stress so it sounds to me like what you're describing even though it's unpleasant sounds like it could actually be eustress so it was interesting that um like paul mccartney once in an interview later said you know a lot of the a lot of the people look back at the beatles and think that we were these uh sweet innocent purely musical fountains he said no man he said john and i we weren't like trying to write masterpieces we we wanted money (laughs) he said we'd be sitting (laughs) there in the room we'd say let's write ourselves a swimming pool let's write a song that's so good that this is going to earn us a swimming pool i want a swimming pool let's write a (laughs) swimming pool and uh he said yeah we were completely materialistic we just wanted money Mm, um and yeah there are some people that wake up every day and just think like, fuck, 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 fuck. Like, how can, like, I suck. I suck. I suck. I need to be good. I like, oh my God, everybody's better than me. Ah, I suck. Yeah. And you know what, if that makes you practice harder, or if that makes you like yeah, tr- sure. try harder to write a better song, then I don't know. I think there's, I think that's healthy. Um, I mean, it's, it's not the most pleasant thing, but I think that's how, you know, greatness comes from that dissatisfaction uh with yeah, yourself yeah. and um that's a really
0: yeah. good point actually because i've I, I picked up on that a few years back where um i was in a conversation with someone a lot older than me and he said you know sam you you really beat yourself up and i was like mm-hmm. no i don't um i'm just hard on myself and i've never mm-hmm. felt like i self you know self-loathe i'm just like you need to be doing better you need to be working harder and i i enjoy yeah. that um yeah. but this person if he had that kind of self-talk it would destroy him yeah so you know everybody has those different motivations it's it's a really good point and i think you've changed my view on that because uh, <laughs> i get a lot of people emailing me and they're like oh you know i want to do this and do this and
1: who am i to say that that's wrong you know i think the uh, same thing about um when people have their fears people often email me uh saying like I'm really scared to do such and such. How can I get over my fears? And I say, no, mm-hmm. don't get over your fears. Pay attention to them. <laughs> like they're mm-hmm. they're trying to tell mm-hmm. you something that you probably should be paying attention to. If maybe if you're scared of this thing, it means you haven't practiced enough, or you're not prepared enough, or there's still too many unknowns there. You need to go do a little more research. Like, um, yeah, point is I don't think we don't need to ignore our negative emotions. Sure. Uh, we can use them and not think there's something we need to get rid of. I like that a lot. Um, switching gears, when you're learning,
0: I, I know that you, you've written a lot of articles on learning skills and, and all this kind of stuff. When you're learning new skills, how do you balance the, let's say, theoretical learning with the actual practice and, and the doing? In other words, how do you make sure that you're not just slowly learning by trial and error without any mm. kind of framework? But also at the same time, making sure that you're not just
1: theorizing and, and thinking without putting in the reps. Okay, this is one of my favorite subjects. So, yeah, you're talking to a guy that went to Berkeley School of Music and not just that, but like I was, <laughs> I loved it. I devoured it, man. I Some people thrive in those situations. Some don't. I, I thrived in that situation. Um, yeah. Because- for most people, making music is almost entirely kind of right brain creative stuff, you know? And so when I got to music school and I took my first songwriting class, and I'm gonna actually, you know what? I'm gonna just, we're talking to musicians here. I'm gonna give you a real example. So we're here, it, it's a class about the craft of songwriting. And the craft of melody writing blew my mind that, um, I'll use another Beatles example because I just have it on the tip of my tongue right now. He talked about how, um, this is just one of many techniques. He said, instead of always making an eight bar phrase, um, into one, four bar phrase, uh, sorry, two, four bar phrases or four, two bar phrases. He said, there are different, more creative ways to split it up. He said, you could break up eight bars into three, three and two. And the Mm. class went, "Mm." he said, okay, real example. The song, uh, we Can Work It Out by the Beatles. Um, hello, one, two, three. So, try to see things my way. Maybe we can do t- that. can't go on. to do Three bars. Try to see things my mm. way. Maybe we can keep on telling. I t- 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 can't go on. That We can work it out. We can work it out. Boom. So that was a way of dividing eight bars into a three bar, a three bar, one and one. And it was like, they just told us that, like, I think this was the first day of class. And I just went like, whoa! I am like, yeah. like scribbling some notes. And of course, like, that night, just went back to the piano. And I write, like, I wrote, like, four different songs using mm. a three-bar, three-bar, one-one kind of, like, just totally imitating the example I had just heard from class. But how cool that now I had a specific technique to go try. Mm. Um and yeah, we can all do that with, I, I, to me, I think that's the best balance is we spend a lot of time in this creative mode where we're trying to be fountains of creativity and come up with new things. But I think whenever, first you have to make a, a, um, a real effort to go learn a specific new technique. Sure. Like yeah. take a, take a song that you like and figure out what you like about it. Like get analytical about it. Like, what is it about this arrangement that that keeps this song interesting? Like, what what's dropping in or coming uh, or coming in or dropping out? What do they do? Like, how is it that they're maintaining my interest here? What is it about the melody? What is it about the instrumentation? Um, it can be those technical things that you learn. You know, you're learning about side chains or whatever, and so now you're going to go compose three pieces using that new technique that you learned. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I, I love. I love that balance then where it's sometimes you're just uh, deliberately doing exercises. It's almost like the uh, composer's version of, uh, you know, a musician doing finger exercises, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's sure. a saxophone player, or a guitar player, you sit down and you go and you do it just to exercise your fingers. But think about that with songwriting, recording, arranging, even just arranging, even if you're just taking like, um, uh, you know uh, Ravel's piece called Bolero. Um, it was criticized in its day because somebody, uh, somebody, like apparently a famous critic, I think I'm doing this off the top of my head, said that it was uh, it, this is 20 minutes of arrangements. There's there's no composition there. It's just an arrangement because <laughs> Ravel's song Bolero just kind of took one basic melody or maybe like just an A B A melody and just repeated it again and mm-hmm. again, but each time the instrumentation changes a little tiny bit, yeah. and I think it's fucking brilliant. Um, yeah. In fact, the best performance I've ever heard of it was by the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra in Wellington. Oh, okay. I, I've become a bit of a uh, nerd for this particular piece of music. I've listened to it everywhere and, and uh, listened to a bunch of different orchestras do it, and the best I've ever heard was New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. But anyway, um, I love Bolero because... It's just an arrangement. It's almost like an exercise. Like, okay, mm, take mm. this one melody, repeat it 30 times, but keep it interesting. Go. Like you've just given yourself yeah. an exercise now. Like you don't need to be such a fountain of, of pure creative genius. You're just doing an exercise. Yeah. So I love this. So um, lastly, I, I think of the metaphor of fertilizer. That these experiments you do, they they can be shit but that's the shit that helps the other stuff grow. Mm. You like, that like fertilizer that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I think I heard that from Bjork actually. Bjork once in an interview <laughs> said, you know, 95% of everything is all crap, but hey, crap is yeah. what makes things grow, right?
0: 100%. I've actually found like the the times where I've developed the most as an artist and learned the most is when I have just come across one technique and I think this was earlier on when I was a newer producer, and there was less um, how do I put it? There was less of a feeling that I had to perform for people and look good and do the right mm, thing. I was mm-hmm. just completely into the music. And so I'd learn a technique and then just spend three days like writing music and putting that technique in every single on every instrument or every song, yep. and like <laughs> to the point where it was overkill, but right. but I learned so much. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's all healthy. That's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, exactly, man. Following on from that, should you strive or should an artist strive to be
1: original or is imitation a valuable approach? Ah, you can probably guess what I'm going to say, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so my take on this is that something that seems obvious to you is probably amazing to others. Um, because you, there it's like there's no truly new ideas in the world, right? We just combine things in a new way. We, we heard one little, we heard a sound somewhere and we combine it with a theory we have. And you combine the sound and the theory and you make something that's eh, technically new, but you know its origin. So it doesn't feel so creative or original to you because you know exactly where it came from. taking the melody from here and the harmony from there. Combine those two things and, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think even the most quote-unquote original or sophisticated and complex musicians know exactly what ingredients they're combining. Like I think of John Coltrane, right? Like people would hear him going, and they'd think, whoa, man, you're blowing my mind. But... He, th- that dude would do finger exercises hours a day. He knew exactly what he was doing he on hates. his instrument. Yep. To him, it was not, whoa, amazing uh, original. It's, he knows exactly what he's doing. It's it's mm-hmm. just kind of obvious to him. Um, and my favorite example is Tom Waits. So I was, I don't know, in my 20s the first time I, no, I mean, what? never mind. I'll skip my, like, how I heard Tom Waits, but I just want to emphasize that I had already been a full-time musician for like 10 years or so. Then I heard Tom Waits and it was the most unique music I had ever heard. Like my jaw dropped, like what the hell? How the hell is he making these sounds? Like how did he come up with that? That is the weirdest, strangest, most unique Sounds I have ever heard in my life. Like his originality blew my mind. I just wondered, how could he ever come up with this? So just a few months ago, I went to the Wikipedia page about Tom Waits. I just was sitting here daydreaming and found myself thinking about him. And, thought, you know, I've never like looked up his history. Where did that dude come from? Like I'm, I've been a fan of his for years. Um, so right there on his Wikipedia page, it said, Uh, you know, he started out kind of doing a certain style that was more classic singer-songwriter, piano-focused. And then he took a new artistic direction where he combined his influences of Harry Parch and Captain Beefheart. So I'd heard of Captain Beefheart before because he's got a memorable name, but Harry Parch, I'd never heard of him. So I copied the name from Wikipedia, pasted it into YouTube, and dude... I was listening to Tom Waits. Like, (laughs) this stuff that I thought was so uniquely Tom Waits, it was totally a Harry Parch ripoff. But Harry Parch would just do instrumental percussive music. So that's where Tom Waits' kind of like strange, clangy percussion was coming from. Hmm. And then vocally, he was kind of imitating Captain Beefheart, maybe a little Howlin' Wolf. Um, You put those two things together and... I can imagine, for him, it was pretty obvious. It's like like oh, I'm gonna take this Harry barch over here and mix it with some cap and beef heart. You, know, <laughs> you just mix and go. He just takes these two influences, yeah, yeah. but then everybody else hears it and goes, "Whoa, what is what is that? And I guess, you know, the the trick then is to not go announce your influences so much. But um, <laughs> so now I hear Tom Waits's music as kind of obvious and maybe even, formulaic once you realize what he's doing i still yeah. think it's absolutely brilliant but now i kind of take away the label of original which is fine i still think it's a masterpiece so sure back to the listener here i think it's the same with you as a musician that um you don't have to worry about being original if you just go combine two of your influences in an interesting way you know, you take a little rhythm from over here and a texture from over there mm. and a melody influenced by you-know-who and voila, you've, you're have you just doing a, a very uh, uh, obvious exercise combining these obvious influences, but you put them together and people will say it's completely original and new. Like most people won't be able to recognize your influences, so you don't have to worry about copying. Um, and lastly, I think that we're all kind of like, we're all warped, mirrors anyway you know the kind of the the cliche of the the funhouse mirror you know you uh you know those those mirrors that are just uh uh deliberately extremely warped and curved so you can stand in front of them and go look my head is huge (laughs) look at my funny little legs Uh, so i think that we are all warped mirrors so even if you tried to completely copy somebody like go ahead like try to imitate bjork (laughs) like it will come out sounding sound a bit different like you, because we are all warped.
0: It's a really good point. Have you seen the documentary series called Everything is
1: a Remix? N- wait, no. It's old. I know. it's. I think I, that's what I was trying to remember. Did I actually see that years ago, or did I put it on my watch someday list sorry i don't remember
0: i uh, it's i forgot who it's by but um they talk about how led zeppelin basically like stairway to heaven is
1: right almost
0: a direct copy of the melody the guitar melody of another song from like 20 years earlier right but the ho- it's so interesting to watch because what you realize is nothing is original yeah like everybody draws from other places and when i learned that and when i kind of discovered that it freed me up creatively because i was mm. like you know what I love how this artist has done this with the drums. I'm just going to copy that. No one's mm-hmm. going to know. And even if they do, it's not copyrighted. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's the yeah. big deal? Uh, and it's such a better way to make music. Yeah. Otherwise, you just work yourself into paralysis, basically, because you're, you're always worried about, oh, is this going to be original
1: enough? Or right. does it sound good? If it sounds good, leave it, move on. I started treating almost everything I made. as just like an, just an exercise, you know, kind of like we said a few mm-hmm. minutes ago, just like, Hmm, I'm going to take these fela kuti drum rhythms and mix it with the Bulgarian women's choir. Yeah, I don't think anybody's yeah. done that. You know, like <laughs> let me play with that combination. You just give yourself an exercise. And yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. I like that a lot. All right, Derek, I've got two more questions and then we'll uh, wrap this up. One thing that, I really admire about you is that you seem to have a like a range of mental models and heuristics that you've either adopted or created yourself and one that's always stuck with me I think it was a Tim Ferriss podcast you mentioned this idea of small tests before making you know significant life decisions maybe you want to move to the city well instead of just renting an apartment or buying an apartment
1: go Airbnb Uh, for two weeks and see if you like it. Yeah.
0: And I love that idea. I think it's a great kind of mental model for making better decisions in life. Do you have any of these mental models
1: for creative people doing creative work? Oh god. Um a lot. I mean, I I tend to live my life a lot by these um huh Dude, I actually never made that comparison until... I don't get to talk about music much these days. (laughs) Like (laughs) Most people don't ask me about music much. So I really just enjoyed our conversation uh, for the past 45 minutes or whatever, talking about this stuff. And I had never made the comparison until this very moment that Mm. the way that I spent years making music doing these deliberate exercises. Like what happens if I combine this thing I heard with that thing I heard, or uh, this thing that I actually heard combined with this in theory technique? You know, like I said, like Mm. splitting up three, three, and two or whatever. Um, Let me try that split up with that. Or sometimes just like a straight up exercise. Like, can I reverse a drum beat? Not, Not actually just reverse the sample, what if I were to actually reverse the beat and play it backwards? Um, whatever. Like I would just, I would do these deliberate exercises of inversion. Let me try the opposite now. Let me try to, you know, bring it down to a 10th of its size now. It, mm. And point is, I think I take that exact same experimentation approach with life. So, um, sorry, this may not be exactly, I'm actually going to take this. um. No, that's fine. I think I might answer this the opposite way that you might have intended that. Sure. I think you were asking about taking like life philosophies, uh, heuristics or whatever, and applying them to music. I think what I've actually done more often is take things that I learned from music and apply them to life. For mm-hmm. example, I, I often think about the role model of uh, some musicians careers like Miles Davis, for example. Um where he was Miles Davis had phases of his career where like now he was the bebop guy right so for years he yeah. was just right there with Charlie Parker um doing bebop and then he decided all right you know I've I've been there done that and even though people still want me to play bebop I got to change it up and come up with something new mm. and so then he did his cool phase with the kind of more modal, less changes. And, um, you know, then eventually he did an electric thing and, and each time he would make a change, people would get mad about it. They'd say, what are you <laughs> doing? That's not what we're paying you for. Like we want the other, we want the thing you're doing already. And then, you know, he started doing like he covered Cyndi Lauper songs and he had like a, electric yeah. guitars in his band and and uh, started like putting on a brightly colored red trumpets with wearing bright outfits like through amps and and people were mad again um and i think of that musicians careers applied to life like okay yeah i've done this thing for a number of years and maybe i'm not necessarily done with it but just in the name of of the arc of life it's time for me to switch it up and do this other thing and people Mm -hmm. get mad at me for not continuing like some people are still mad that i'm not at CD Baby anymore, <laughs> you know? I get emails, I probably like one email every week or two of somebody just like, man, oh man, I'm still pissed off the United are C- you know, they're not answering my phone calls, <laughs> you know, when I, when you were there, you know, I'm like, sorry, I, I can't yeah. keep doing the same thing. Um, and um, then I think about artists' careers like David Bowie, where he would like put on a persona for a few years. He'd like, for the next few years, I am this guy. Now I'm Ziggy Stardust. Now I'm the Thin White Duke, whatever it may be. Um, even, uh, what's his name? Um, Paul Simon. Uh, and I don't know what he's done in the last 20 years, but if you look at what he was doing in the 70s and 80s, it felt like every album or two, he would pick a new genre of music he knew nothing about and dive into yeah. it. And he'd say, like, I really don't know anything about gospel, so I'm going to make a couple gospel records. Mm-hmm. And then he got together with uh, Ladysmith Black Mombazo and did Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints after that. And uh, he would just take these periods. And I, I heard um, that before he made, what was it, Still Crazy After All These Years, that he actually, even though he was already a successful, famous musician, he started learning taking lessons and learning jazz theory and studying with jazz huh. musicians and like just totally increased his repertoire of changes. And I just so admire that. Um, I think that's what being an artist is about. Yeah. It's, it's living your life like the artist's life. And then there, of course there's the uh, yeah. Bob Dylan has the, uh, you know, great lines you know, uh, what was it? The, something about an artist can't look back, you know, um, oh, I forget what yeah, the exact yeah, lyric yeah. was, but I think about that a lot too. Like, In life, Um, you you know, before we hit record, you asked uh, why I moved from New Zealand to Oxford, England, where I'm talking from now. And it's like, well, I love New Zealand. It was time to go. Um, Mm. Just in the name of this kind of the big changes in life, you know. Um, I've Mm. already lived here. Now it's time to, as much as I love it, it's time to try the next thing. It is funny how uh,
0: fans and, and I guess, consumers – think that they can control artists like i've Mm -hmm. noticed that a lot like Mm -hmm. you you kind of mentioned it like oh you shouldn't be doing this you should be making this it's like come on you don't have any ownership yeah but we've all felt that
1: too you know there's some artists that we all kind of wish that they would just keep doing that thing that we like and then you have artists like acdc that like just did the (laughs) exact same thing for like 40 years i don't know how the hell they did it like i can't I could never do yeah. that. But some people are thrilled about that. Some people are really happy that ACDC made the same album over and over again for 40 years. That yeah. is
0: that is a good point. I, I guess that's kind of hypocritical because I know quite a few artists who if they change their sound and style, it'd piss me off. <laughs> and I'd be a bit angry. So <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I retract that statement or like, completely. Well, you know, it's um, just, I mean, that's life, right? It's, it's kind of like being in like, relationships and love or whatever. Like you yeah. don't want... You don't want your partner to be jealous of you when you're doing something that she shouldn't be jealous of. And you think, hey, how the hell can you be jealous? But on the other hand, it's like, (laughs) on the other hand, I remember what it's like to feel jealous for no reason.
0: Yeah, that's life. Yeah, Exactly. Okay, I want to end this by uh, talking about an article that you wrote in 2016. And I think this is crucial for our audience. This article was titled, How to Do What You Love and Make Good Money. And in it, you recommend that one should have a well-paying job and seriously pursue the art for love, not money. Could you expand on why you think this is a good approach and, and what you meant by that?
1: I'm, I'm only saying it out of observation. I didn't okay. I didn't go out into the world deciding that this was the best way to be. But I just started noticing sure. over and over and over again. I mean, imagine this. I mean, at CD Baby, I had I think by the time I left, I had 185,000 musician clients. Wow. And I was very, um, because I lived in New York City and I lived in Los Angeles, um, it was different than, you know, the years when I lived in New Zealand and I was pretty, you know, remote and isolated. My yeah. years in LA and New York City, it's like every single week I was out at events meeting, you know, whether anywhere from five to a hundred musicians a day at various just events and get togethers and Mm -hmm. conferences and all that. So I met with so many musicians and over and over and over again, I noticed that the happiest musicians I met, actually, let me reverse it. The unhappiest musicians I met were either the ones that um, were full-time musicians desperately needing their music to like pay their rent, pay their mortgage. Sure. And, they would get so stressed out and freaked out if their music wasn't making enough money to pay their cost of living. And I just thought they were always really on edge and really unhappy and really freaked out. If the slightest thing changed, you know, whatever mm. Google changes their algorithm, it's like, Oh fuck, I can't pay my next month's rent now, you yeah, know, like, yeah. like so on the edge. Um, on the other hand, I would meet a lot of musicians that had, uh, a full-time job that, and they weren't giving enough time to their music. And so they'd be miserable because they weren't uh, expressing themselves enough. So each, Mm -hmm. um, each half of those miserable people always felt that uh, they needed more of the other. So um, if, uh, yeah, if a musician was just depending entirely on their music for income, I'd often hear them say like, man, maybe I need to learn computer programming or something, you know, make some money on the (laughs) side. And, uh, I'd people who were working only on a full time job would just say, I, "I think I need to quit my job, yeah, yeah. to do music full time." And I'd say, uh, "I don't know, you guys should meet <laughs> and see that you know, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. the other side's pretty miserable too." And but then the happiest musicians I met were the ones that had this balance. Mm. It it has to be. A day job, it doesn't even need to pay a ton. It can just be some simple, you know, working at the post office or whatever it may be. Um, A simple job that doesn't completely suck your soul. The kind of thing where you can go in at 9 a.m. and leave at 5 p.m., not freak out. Um, But then the important balance is to then take your art seriously after that. So you come home, and whether it's before or after you make a meal, you actually pursue your art seriously mm-hmm. two to three hours a night or yep. six to eight hours a weekend or whatever it may be. And not and not after you've completely relaxed and after you've watched a TV show and sure. then... Yeah. it's kind of like people who, who only read books like half an hour before bed and they they always just like read a few pages and fall asleep. But what do you expect? You saved it until half an hour before bed. So um, same thing with your, your music. Um, The ones who actually take it seriously and actually practice hard, work hard, um, try as hard as they can to be great. Like, they're not just completely giving up. They're just like, I eh, just do it just for fun. It doesn't matter. Like, no, it does matter. They would they would actually release music, put it out for sale, take their artist career seriously, but while maintaining a nine-to-five job that paid their cost of living. Those people yeah. I met were so happy because they, their cost of living was covered by the day job. Yeah. yeah. So now their music, they could... They could do it and enjoy it. Talk about, you know, hey, sorry, rewinding like 30 minutes to your question about enjoying the process. (laughs) Um, They really seemed to enjoy the process, but it's important that you have to take it seriously. So sorry, I'm I'm you know, answering you off the top of my head, but if you go to sivers.org slash balance, I I write it better there. I think I put it into better words there. Yeah, it's a great article. One
0: question I had though is, let's let's say I'm in that position, I've got a job and I'm doing this on the side and then my music starts to take off a bit. And you know, I don't jump too early, but I wait twelve months, let's say, and I'm making as much money from my music as I am from my job. Mm-hmm. Do I just continue down that path, or does it make sense to just go all in on the music, or is that too much of a contextual
1: question and it depends on the person? Yeah, and and depends on the job, depends on the boss. I mean, I yeah. did a um um, you actually just described my scenario exactly. When I was 22, um, I had been. Mm-hmm. It was the last time I had a day job. I, I worked at a, a music publishing company in midtown Manhattan uh, for two and a half years from the age of 20 until 22 and a half, when I got this great gig playing guitar for uh, a Japanese pop star, Ryuichi Sakamoto. And hmm. I had already been, no, sorry, even for that tour, that's right. I just re- remembered that was a one-off tour, but it was going to be like a one-month tour of Japan. So I went to my boss and I said, okay, I've got two weeks of vacation that I haven't used. I've got eight sick days I haven't used. Um, (laughs) I just want to ask for two days off because I can use my two weeks here and my eight sick days. I'm only missing two days. I don't need to quit, but I need to tell you, I got to take this gig. I'm going to Japan for a month. I want my job when I come back in a month. And he's just like, no problem, man. He said, we love you. Just go do your thing. Use your sick days and and vacation days. See you in a month, and so yeah, I uh, they got somebody to cover for me, and I came back a month yeah. later and and uh, was back at my job. But then, so I carried on at that job for another six months or so until all the various musician gigs I was doing around town. I was like a session musician. I was playing guitar on people's records and mm-hmm. was producing people's demos and I was playing with a circus on the weekends. I was doing all these gigs as a freelance musician, but all of it while maintaining my nine to five job and at yep. a certain point i realized yeah i'm earning more from music than i am from my day job so that's when mm. i quit uh yeah only when it was when calculated I was, yeah. yeah and i just yeah i yeah. had to go as long as i can it wasn't just out of some frustration yeah. of just like oh man if i quit my job then i'm sure my music will take off you know because i think ryan Holiday has that. a quote yeah ryan Holiday has
0: a quote that goes something like uh, jump when you see the landing but mm. not before. And I, I think that's crucial because a lot of people just, uh, it's the whole survivorship bias thing. They they mm-hmm. hear about someone who quit their job, had no money and still managed to make
1: it work. It's like, yeah, that probably won't be you though. Um, <laughs> right, we don't hear the stories. <laughs> like not not to the, be discouraging, but yeah. Right. There's a the nine out of the 10 that that doesn't work for, and we don't hear them glorified exactly. in magazines. I like the metaphor of Tarzan swinging through the jungle that, um, mm when, you know, he's swinging on the vines in the jungle, right? So if you're swinging on vines in the jungle, you don't let go of the last vine until the next vine is in your hand. Uh, Of course. (laughs) So it's kind of like like when you've got the next one in your hand, that's when you can let go of the previous one. Um, Mm. And the other lesson from Tarzan is don't lose momentum. Because if you stop swinging, (laughs) then (laughs) you're just hanging still on a vine. You got nothing to do with drop down.
0: Very good point. Well, Derek, thank you so much for your time. I had a great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So. Uh, and are there any last words that you want to leave for the listeners?
1: The as you could hear, I don't. I'm not here pitching anything or anything like that. So I actually really enjoy uh, hearing from people. It's actually one of my favorite things. Um, so anybody who listened all the way through this podcast, uh, if you go to Sivers.org, you'll see a contact me link right there and i still read and answer every single email so drop me an email say hello even if you don't have a question for me just introduce yourself i enjoy it excellent